local businesses going uni online. This week, we're talking about interesting information found while analyzing council voting records and Edmonton businesses discovering that Amazon makes a lot of money. Plus, as COVID cases continue to rise, we talk to Sharon Yeo about whether restrictions are warranted or necessary. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 107, where it is now illegal for Mac to be in my house, but thankfully, I haven't seen him in, what has it been, six, seven years? It feels like that. Yeah, a lifetime. We are still recording online, and I am just putting this out there so that everyone understands that I'm a due diligence, good little boy. Please don't send the police at me, Jason Kenny. On to the rapid fire. An article in the Edmonton Journal Tuesday afternoon highlighted residents' demands for more swift and impactful climate action. At Edmonton's current level of emissions, the city will exceed its 2050 carbon budget in a mere seven to nine years. Administration is proposing $47 million in spending to accelerate our greenhouse gas reductions through measures like expanding the solar rebate program, accelerating tree planting, and expanding the city's bike lane infrastructure. 30 residents were present at Executive Committee Tuesday afternoon in support of the measures. At press time, however, post-media editors were left scrambling as they realized they had written an article mentioning bike lanes without getting comment from Councillor Mike Nichol. A public apology has been issued for not presenting both sides of an issue equally, with the paper asking readers to simply, quote, assume Councillor Nichols' position, you'll probably be right. Edmonton Transit Service touted this week their increased safety through allowing passengers to report safety and security concerns via text message. Transit Chief Eddie Robar said, quote, Really, there's only one thing to say to the request that we allow text reports of concerns. WTF, LOL, which I'm pretty sure means we think it's fabulous. Lots of love. Edmonton has taken home 76th place in the world's best cities ranking this year. The report notes Edmonton's high people and prosperity rankings as an asset to the city and, of course, celebrates the Fringe Festival and theater scene as great reasons to live here. Said the report author, quote, Edmonton has really wonderful people and is a great place to live. If you have to live in one of Alberta's two largest cities, then choosing Edmonton gets you so close, just one off of the correct choice, living in Calgary. Ranked 47th. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. And did you know that chartered professional accountants, also known as CPAs, can handle more than just financials? Those three little letters means you're working with a professional who is trained to make a difference in an organization. CPAs can bridge all areas of an organization and understand the ins and outs of your business and bring a holistic view to problem solving. If you've never considered hiring a CPA before, literally, what are you waiting for? We've told you this so many times. Just go ahead and do it. For an inside look at how Alberta CPAs are supporting their clients through the pandemic, follow CPA Alberta on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. You can also visit cpaalberta.ca to find out more. To start us off today, it's always so nice when you get an email from one, a listener, because you know it validates that they exist and it's not a Russian botnet that's listening to the Edmonton Municipal Politics Podcast, but two, when the listener says, hey, I did some research, I did some investigation, and if you want, I'll come talk about it, which on two fronts reduces the amount of work that I have to do. And oh boy, did Justin Smalley deliver this week. We've got Justin Smalley on the podcast. He's a guy that listens. He didn't really give us a lower third other than he's interested and he can work with data and he worked with city council records to answer some questions. Justin, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me on the show, guys. So in a nutshell, 
what did you do? What was the crux of the email that you sent to Mac and I about a week and a half ago? In, in the last year or so, I've become interested in municipal politics and started listening to this show. I've started listening to council meetings themselves. It's something to have on in the background while I'm at work. As we go through that, I found that there were certain patterns of voting patterns that the councillors would vote on. Kind of the way my brain works is once I start seeing that, I really want to start quantifying that. What I did was uh, took all the city council uh, voting records that were available on their open data website and made a report on which councillors are most likely to agree with anyone else on any given motion. So you've got a blog post as well where you've written about this data and we'll share that in the show notes, but you went and looked at a whole bunch of questions. You committed an act of journalism is what we like to say. You're looking for who votes against the grain, blocks of councillors that might vote together, the most likely to vote with each other against a particular person. There's some really interesting stuff in the data. And I remember seeing an analysis like this from you, Troy, in the past. The data gets out of date really quickly, right? Because council's always making new motions and votes. So Justin, what what was kind of the highlights of what you found in your analysis? Well, I think one of the highlights is that it's kind of just reinforces the, the feeling you get of how you think everyone votes. The most obvious thing is Mike Nichol is in the least agreements with everybody. More than half the time, he was disagreeing with other councillors. And I guess now's a good time to sort of jump in how I filtered the data, because over the course of this term for council, there was over 6,000 different motions. And after I filtered them out, there was only 527 left worth analyzing, about 8%. I only kept in the city council meetings. Um, any unanimous votes I filtered out. So that got rid of a lot of stuff like approving agendas, approving going into private. And anytime there was multiple motions for the exact same item, I would filter those out too. So first, second reading of the same item, I would only keep one of those. I have gone through this same experience that you had. Uh, like Max said, it was a few years ago, at least when I made yegvotes.info, which was a site that aimed to aggregate council voting records and answer some of these questions. I suspect you have the same feeling of a little bit of frustration working with the data because you were mentioning in the pre-show that there's no real hierarchy of data. There's no label in the open data catalog saying that this is an important vote. Look at this one, right? Well, I didn't didn't really go into detail of what's important or what isn't. So one of the votes, uh, Mayor Iveson didn't want to recess at a certain time. That was kept in because it was not a unanimous vote. So that was weighted equally with, say, a solar panel farm in the River Valley. Of the stuff that was non-unanimous, like you said, there was some unsurprising stuff. Mike Nickel votes no against everything. I think you have in your data that Mike Nickel votes yes on contentious votes roughly 44% of the time. What were some other surprises that you found in the data? Another surprise, I was kind of expecting there to be a for lack of a better term, a right-wing voting block, roughly made up of Mike Nichol, Zadik, Banga, and Katarina. That was my expectation going into it. And as it turns out, they don't actually vote together most of the time. They tend to vote just how they see fit on any given issue and don't appear to coordinate in any uh, major or discernible way. Whereas there does seem to be 
a bit of a voting block around Don Iveson, consisting of him, Esslinger, McKean, Hamilton, Knack, Walters, Henderson, and sometimes Cartmel. So one of the other interesting things that I noticed in your data is that, like you said, there's no right-wing voting block, but there's no left-wing voting block either. There's a voting block around Iveson, and fittingly, Iveson appears to be on the winning side of the motion, the most on council, tied with Esslinger, who has the same number of votes. What do you think that sort of indicates that rather than there being a sort of like left-right divide, there's just the mayor and not? Yeah, I, I suppose so. It appears that, I mean, the mayor is supposed to set the tone and brings things to the table. I guess that's what it's saying is that more than half of the councillors generally agree with the direction that the mayor is leading the city in. The other thing I found kind of interesting, just picking back up on this left-wing, right-wing thing, is you said that uh, in the data you found Nickel agrees with Paquette the most, while Paquette agrees with Nickel the least. So it could be argued that Nickel is the most right wing and Paquette is the most left wing. I thought that was pretty, pretty interesting. I wouldn't have guessed Paquette. Yeah, I wouldn't have either. Um, I, and I think that's just a statistical anomaly. Um, um, agrees with Mike Nickel the least. I think that's actually really fascinating to see on paper and statistically analyzed because I don't actually believe it's a statistical anomaly. Mac, I don't know if you recall, but there have been a couple episodes we've discussed where Paquette and Mike Nickel are on the same side of the opposing vote. That's right. And I likened it back to sort of like Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders have similar policies on trade, but for wildly different reasons. And I think we do see a lot of that in council. And it's nice to see these in numbers. Yeah, absolutely. And it's only possible because we don't have parties at this level, right? These councillors are, are free to make that choice on their own and to represent their constituents when they do so. But that's what allows some of these decisions to get made in the way that they are, I think. I want to talk a little bit about attendance because you didn't aggregate attendance records. Um, probably rightly so. I've complained about the validity of attendance records in the past. But what you did evaluate was absentee frequency. So councillors who weren't present for any particular vote that was non-unanimous. Did you find anything interesting in analyzing the absenteeism on close votes? Yeah. So like you said, I didn't, didn't analyze absenteeism for each individual meeting. But what I did look at was where a specific motion was only one or two votes away from, from swaying, passing or failing. Um, and I did find that, again, Mike Nickel had the most number of absentees on close votes with four. I love also, Justin, in your post, you had a quick shout out to Councillor Knack on his perfect attendance for any non-unanimous votes. He's the only councillor, it looks like, that has not missed a, a non-unanimous vote. Yeah, that's, um, he must have been using his crystal ball and made sure not to skip any meetings that didn't have a unanimous vote. In fact, if you do eventually go look at the attendance records for meetings, uh, Knack is one of those that judiciously and annoyingly shows up to just about everything. Last time I aggregated this was for the 13 to 17 term, but at that point he had only missed the start of one committee meeting. Otherwise he had flawless attendance. So, you know, at that point, again, to be a bit of a keener. Mm. Justin, is there any other closing thoughts, anything we didn't touch on that you thought was pretty interesting or you wanted to mention about this data? There was one more important one, uh, the count of times that a single person objected to a vote. And again, Mike Nichols led that at 62 votes. So 62 times he was the only objector to a motion. 
next in line was Banga and Zadok with 27, and the least was um, Hamilton and Iveson with two and three, respectively. I think it's really interesting that piece of data as well, because it's not just a slight increase. Nickel is more than double, and it almost to me, reads as a bit of showboating at that point. Like, in order to be the sole objector that frequently and to pump your fist in the air and say, I'm not voting yes that many times, it almost feels like performance art as much as a chart can look like performance art. At the top of this, you mentioned that you like to listen to city council live streams in the background and you are creating this set of data analysis to look at city council voting records. And... By golly, if I didn't make yegvotes.info while I was uh, working in a cubicle listening to city council in the background as I was working, that sounds a lot like me. So I guess just, you know, plotting the line along. When are you running for council? Oh, that's a good question. I have no no intentions of doing that. <laughs> that's the smart answer. <laughs> good call. No, no intention of uh, losing by that many votes. Okay. Whoa. <laughs> Snap. <laughs> And with that, we're going to wrap up that segment. Thanks so much for joining us, Justin. It was really fascinating. You're definitely a listener. (laughs) All right. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. It's always so great when a listener just comes in and does my job for me. If you are listening to this episode and think, hey, I could do Troy's job better than him, send us an email. Let us know. Well, we're happy to offload the work. And speaking of offloading all the work, how can I even hold all the guests we're having today? We're going to talk to Sharon Yo about restaurants and COVID and what's up with that. So I want to talk about restaurants and COVID-19 and in particular restaurant closures or maybe the lack of restaurant closures. And I thought the best way to do that would be to have our food curator join me. So Sharon Yo, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So back in March when the lockdown happened that Jason Kenney doesn't remember. Restaurants were closed and uh, you couldn't uh, dine in. Then they reopened them with limited capacity in the middle of May. And then in June, it was a full reopening. Is that right? Yes. So, I mean, I, I mean, everyone will remember this, although it feels like ages ago now. On May 18th, uh, much to the surprise, we kind of advanced our stages and restaurants were able to open with 50% capacity on May 18th. And then the next stage for restaurants for dine-in services was June 15th, where uh, there was no capacity limitation so long as patrons seated at tables together could be separated by two meters. And that's the state that we've been in ever since, basically? Yes. Okay. And we've seen restaurants close for voluntary reasons or because they've had a confirmed case. But other than that, it's basically been business as usual. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure restaurants would say it's business as usual. I, I mean, I think there's still many people who are wanting to support local businesses, but, you know, potentially are weary for personal reasons or having people in their families or maybe themselves having um, immunocompromised conditions. So I, I know it's been a struggle for local restaurants to stay afloat, particularly those, you know, who may not have had a rigorous takeout program before or may not have, you know, great options for delivery because as the weather changes, so many more people are obviously choosing to stay in the comfort of their own home, not because of COVID, but potentially because of weather. And we have seen restaurants close, obviously, over the last six months, possibly because of COVID-19 or at least exacerbated by the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, 
it's again a long time before, uh, or it feels like a long time ago, but I mean, it, even before COVID hit in March, the economic downturn was in full swing and, and many restaurants were feeling the pinch at that time. And then adding the layer of coronavirus onto everything, it's, it's made it much more difficult to operate with these restrictions and with you know, again, some some of the members of the public with wavering resolve to, to eat in or, or order in. So then we fast forward to October and we're starting to see cases rise in Alberta. And there's been a growing call from the public to perhaps introduce more restrictive measures, maybe to go back into a lockdown. Uh, recently, there was a group of doctors that wrote a letter to the premier and the chief medical officer asking for a sort of circuit breaker lockdown where we'd go to this two-week period. Uh, but Jason Kenney hasn't been supportive of the idea. He's been pretty firm that restaurants are going to stay open, right? Yeah, there's been a number of studies primarily drawing on American data. Um, so there was a study in September that drew on data from 11 cities and those that had tested positive for COVID-19 were found to be twice as likely to have dined out within the last two weeks compared with those who had tested negative. And just this week, another study based on data that was taken from uh, cell phones from 10 U.S. cities from the months of March to May, said that restaurants are four times riskier than gyms and coffee shops. And that study recommends that capacity be reduced to 30% to limit the risks of dining indoors. And so um, very recently, last week, uh, Premier Kenny said that based on their data, it was only 0.7% of cases that could be traced back from restaurant exposure. Obviously, we know there are many cases that have no known exposure and what, what um, Alberta Health Services uh, surmounts is community exposure. So it's really difficult if they have an incomplete data picture to know exactly if that 0.7% uh, spread is true. And so certainly the measures that were announced today about restaurants needing to stop serving alcohol at 10 p.m. and restaurants being asked and bars to close for 11 p.m. Uh, may not bring that much comfort to uh, people who were thinking that the lockdown measures that were announced today would be a little more drastic than that. So with regards to restaurant closures, there have been a number of restaurants that have chosen to close voluntarily to dine-in services. So earlier this week, uh, Nongbu, a Korean restaurant, uh, transitioned to takeout only. And yesterday, uh, Fleisch and Cartago did the same voluntarily. No one has asked them to do this, um, but they have both shared in their social media that they are doing this for the community and that it wasn't an easy decision. So maybe more restaurants will do that. Um, and obviously, they're hoping that patrons will uh, choose them for takeout and think of them for takeout. And you know, good on them for making that very difficult financial decision. But I guess we'll wait and see if this circuit breaker will yield the results that Premier Kenny hopes. Though this isn't really the circuit breaker that people are asking for. I mean, the only restriction on restaurants is that they close by 11pm and stop serving alcohol at 10pm. But there's no limits on capacity or, or anything like that, right? No. And I, I mean, the other piece to, to think about this, and I mean, we haven't as a family uh, dined in since March. So it's hard to know the types of measures that many restaurants have chosen to do on their own to ensure the safety of patrons. And I'm sure they are varied and some of them are probably quite strict. Um, so, I mean, we personally have done takeout pretty consistently since March. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, even 
uh, having gone to pick up food, we know that certain establishments do take temperature of people coming in. Certain establishments do ask you to fill out a contact tracing document, but those are entirely voluntary. And so, I mean, I, I think in terms of uh, restaurants doing that, I think it's great that they are taking that measure. But again, all of this is voluntary as has been the recommendation from our premier. Most of these recommend are just recommendations. They are not mandated. And so without a consistent message or even um, consistent guidelines to follow, I think, you know, that's why people, including myself, are a little bit weary of, of eating indoors with other people. Yeah, the chambers are calling for a risk index or something that would be more clear what the restrictions are, what stage we're in, like they have in Ontario. So just to recap this, the evidence is pretty clear from a bunch of studies that restaurants are a place that the virus is transmitted. The premier has said pretty clearly, quote, I give my absolute commitment to the sector that is struggling that barring some absolute catastrophe, there is no likelihood of restrictions on their ability to operate, end quote. So he's basically committed over and over that restaurants are not going to close in the face of this evidence. And we're seeing some local restaurants in Edmonton, at least, take the initiative on their own. Potentially more will follow, but we're going to need more than just two restaurants to voluntarily do this in order for it to make a difference. Yeah, I mean, that's where the piece around personal choice and uh, and the responsible freedom that uh, Premier Kenny has, has talked about is very confusing for people in general, right? If Alberta Health Services states that it's safe for people to dine indoors, I think many people take that as gospel. And so they will follow that and continue to dine indoors. So there is a level of government responsibility in terms of following and, and, you know, enforcing some of these recommendations that have come from these studies. Thank you, Sharon, for coming and uh, telling us a bit about that. Of course, you can read Sharon's uh, roundup every Tuesday morning, uh, the food roundup, all the latest uh, openings. There are still restaurants opening, uh, but closures and, and other news from the sector as well. Thanks for having me. Restaurants are absolutely a vector for the spread of coronavirus. And of course, to reduce the spread of coronavirus in public, we've implemented a mask bylaw in the city of Edmonton. And that's coming up for review. Uh, in fact, tomorrow we're recording this Thursday night. So as you are listening to this, dear listener, we have heard that there are upwards of 100 people registered to speak at Community and Public Services Committee about the temporary mandatory face coverings bylaw being extended until May 31st, 2021. Mac, what do you think those people will be saying? Well, that's the recommendation. I don't see how council won't approve that. I mean, it's pretty clear uh, the situation is much worse today in Alberta and in Edmonton than it was when they originally passed this bylaw. So I'm not sure it matters what people are going to say, um, because I think council is going to do it. But I imagine with that many people, most of them are there to complain about their freedom and their personal liberties and how masks infringe upon their rights. See, I'll go one step further. I'm sure none of those people are saying anything material that will change council's opinion whatsoever. What would you think about council just closing the public hearing, saying, welcome to the 100 speakers. Unfortunately, we're not going to hear from any of you. Let's close the public hearing and vote yes. It's probably anti-democratic, right? <laughs> probably, but it would probably be the right call in this case. Uh, it would set a very dangerous precedent. So I imagine they will want to hear from people. Any counselors listening? Probably a dumb idea. But the show is rife with dumb ideas this week. And Mac, I think this is just one for you to take away because in the show notes, 
I see local Amazon. Why this is a stupid, dumb, ridiculous idea. Yeah. <laughs> What's going on here? So maybe I got a little carried away in the show notes, but you know, the feeling I think that captures it. Business associations were at committee this week talking about how they're handling the pandemic and what businesses need to make it through and what kind of support the city can offer. And one of their ideas is to build a new e-commerce portal where customers can buy from local businesses online. Uh, Sherry Clausen is the chair for the Council of BIAs, and she's also the executive director of the Old Strathcona Business Association. And she called it an Edmonton Amazon, or sort of Edmonton Amazon, and said, we would love it if we had a City of Edmonton e-commerce site for all of our local businesses. Uh, the one article you'll find in the show notes will uh, highlight that they did acknowledge that this is probably a bit too ambitious. You know, you're not going to build everything that uh, Amazon has become in, in just a month or two before the Christmas shopping season. Uh, but they are committed to this idea. They do want this online portal where you could buy things. And the first step might just be taking a couple of the existing directories that popped up during the pandemic and tweaking them so that you could link to companies direct tools. So that's the news. This is dumb to me for two reasons, primarily. The first is that in my experience, involvement in local, every kind of issue, doesn't matter what sector it is, invariably, somebody will come to the table and say, wouldn't it be great if we just had one place where you could go to do this or to find this information? And I've never seen one of those projects actually work. I built one actually and it failed. This is not a thing that solves a problem <laughs> that people have, right? This is a thing that makes you feel like you're doing something without actually materially accomplishing anything, especially in the case of shopping, because what we should be spending this money on is instead of a new website that is run by some either group of BIAs or even worse, the city of Edmonton itself, we should be giving that money to the businesses that don't currently have online ordering systems and other things they need to do e-commerce so that they can do that. And that is where some of that grant money has gone. And I think that's a wise investment. But to then try to build a portal that is separate from all of those businesses and doesn't really help them build their businesses in the same way, I think is a really terrible, terrible idea. Like, there's only two ways I see this going. One is, this is, like you said, the city of Edmonton running it, so they don't necessarily need to charge a commission on every sale because it's run as a public service off a grant or something. But then you have the problem where it's run by the city of Edmonton. Oh, God, why? The other option is that it's a completely private enterprise and there's some bureaucratic organization that's spun up to run this thing, in which case they need to take a cut of sales to do this. Now, if I'm a business who like has decent name recognition and I have a Shopify store or whatever that I'm already paying a cut to Shopify, I'm not getting listed on their stupid marketplace. Like, is this going to be actually Amazon selling and buying products or is this going to be like a Squarespace site with links to all the local businesses. Either way, I don't see it helping businesses in any way at all. Those who already have enough online presence to do online sales and succeed in that will probably succeed with or without this. And those that don't can't succeed with this. No, and they should get money if that's something we want to invest in as a community to acquire that capability or to build it. We've seen lots of businesses over the last few months launch online ordering systems because they didn't have them before. And some of those are doing really, really well, actually, especially as we get into the Christmas season. So I think that's a wise investment. But this portal idea 
doesn't really make sense. The city said that it is having some conversations with Explore Edmonton, the renamed Edmonton Tourism. Um, They have one of these directories of local businesses that could potentially be turned into something like this. But, you know, that's an arm's length organization. The city's the shareholder there. I'm not sure that's any better than the city running it themselves either. I will say as well that it's true that when we spend money locally, that money goes into the economy and is amplified and has a much bigger impact than when we spend money elsewhere. I'm not at all arguing against shopping locally. I've spent thousands of dollars this year locally. We've been ordering takeout every week from local restaurants to try to support them during the pandemic. Uh, I really do put my money where my mouth is. I just don't think the portal idea is a very good one. I think there are better ways to help these local businesses. And there's better uses for taxpayer dollars, frankly. The appeal of Amazon is that it is so trivially easy to get anything you want for cheap price and convenience it's cheap and it comes so easily you don't have to think about it you don't have to navigate a different interface every time you go and do an order like it's very very simple the idea that going to a kludgy directory website that redirects you to some business who may have set up a website in 1994 back when they were using netscape navigator and you want to eat your peas and pay more because it's local and you're supporting local, that's that's not Amazon. Eating your peas is not what Amazon is all about. It's not an Edmonton Amazon. It's a directory website. Let's just call it what it is and call it a bad idea. And the second thing that I just wanted to mention that I, you know, I had said there was two things. The other thing is when you build a site like this, as you're pointing out, Troy, you've got to tell people about it. So it's not just the money to build the website. It's then the money to market it and promote it. All money that could be spent better promoting those individual businesses themselves rather than some new directory. So I seem to recall Explore Edmonton did a sort of double your gift card contest uh, early on in the pandemic where, you know, if you bought a gift card to a local organization, they would double your value and send you more gift cards. You had a lot of local businesses buy into that and say, wow, this is cool. This is great. Send everyone to it. And then it turned out to be a bit of a grift where a lot of people didn't get their gift cards and the whole thing there was a bunch of businesses coming out and saying they were embarrassed to have promoted it. They're embarrassed to have supported this. I bet some of the businesses might be feeling that bit of burn and they may not be apt to direct all their traffic to a third party that they don't control that might end up burning the local businesses anyway. Absolutely. The intent here to help local businesses is the right intent. There's better ways to go about it. Buy local, eat your piece. We're going to Jump off to a segment we haven't done in a long time, and that's our slow burn segment. Sometimes there's just things that we have some updates on that we haven't talked about in a while or that we need to share updates on, and we don't have a lot to say about them. And we've got a couple of things this week. Uh, One of them is, in a previous episode a couple of weeks ago, we had talked about Scott McKean's commentary and how he sort of like threw out that Hope Mission He had some skepticism about them as an organization, and he had some reservations about how well they run uh, their organization and their uh, shelter facilities in the city of Edmonton. We had commented that, like, hey, if there's problems here, you know, subtweeting through the media, probably not the best way to handle this. And this week, there was an Instagram post circulating from an organization called Shades of Color Yeg, essentially alleging that Hope Mission uh, is not very welcoming to the LGBTQ2S plus spectrum, that trans individuals are not welcome at Hope Mission, and that if you are trans, you have to spend time 
with the gender that is listed on your driver's license, despite what you may identify as, despite any home violence that you might have had based on your trans identity. None of these have been proven in court or anything, but it's a pretty compelling post and we'll share the link in the show notes. And I think it's really interesting and furthers a conversation about just because we have a shelter organization in the city of Edmonton doesn't mean that what they're providing is necessarily free of criticism. And then the other update for our slow burn is also related to the shelters. Just a follow up on Camp Pekawiwin, the encampment in Rossdale, the city issued a news release this week saying that it is now closed. They posted closure notices at the camp on Sunday, November 8th, and staff uh, were there today on Thursday to um, tell anybody who remained that it was closed. They had a charter bus that took people to available space in the shelter system, so either the Edmonton um, Convention Center or one of the other available shelters, and uh, they expect that the site will be all cleaned up in the next couple of days. So uh, everybody who is down in Rossdale, hopefully now, has a warm place to spend the winter. I will add a bit of an addendum to uh, that summary that you gave. It wasn't just city staff that closed Pekawiwin. There were about 50 police officers present at the time. I won't make hay of that. Good point. These are developing stories that I'm sure we will delve into in future episodes as we learn more. And right now, I think it's time to learn more about Park Power. This episode is brought to you by Park Power, a provider of electricity and natural gas in Alberta that offers low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who you buy your energy from. If you choose Park Power, your money stays here. Plus, Park Power shares its profits with local not-for-profits that are working to make a difference for their communities. Shopping local is very important to Park Power's owner, Chris Kosowski, and we love local here at the Alberta Podcast Network, so it's a great fit. You can learn more at parkpower.ca. Do you think we'll be able to find Park Power on the Edmonton Amazon? I think so. I hope so. And if not, you can go directly to their website and buy it from there. That's all for this week. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. I'm Justin. And we're Speaking 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 Spe